welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Anatole Levin, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute, among many other associations. Anatole, welcome to the show. Hello. I want to ask you about the ongoing tensions between Russia and Ukraine, and by extension, Russia and the West, or the US and its European allies. Russia's been building up troops and military assets along the Ukrainian border, and for weeks has been there's been a kind of escalating standoff uh, and an exchange of messages. Before we really dive into what's been happening most recently, though, I wonder if you can explain the lead up to the current situation. How did we get here? Well, it, it really began with NATO expansion after the, uh, the end of the Cold War. Uh, Russia accommodated itself okay to NATO membership for um, the former East European Soviet satellite states. But Ukraine's a different matter. Um, Ukraine and Russia have been linked uh, in one way or another for a, a thousand years and more. Uh, there's a huge Russian minority in Ukraine. Um, it's strategically vital to Russia. Um, and it's, the Russians regard it as a core part of their history. So for a whole set of reasons, um, the Russian establishment, the Russian blob, if you like, certainly not just Putin, are determined that Ukraine should not become uh, an ally of the West against Russia. And they are prepared to threaten war to stop this. Whether they will actually go to war uh, is is a different matter. Uh, and um, although the Russians, I, th I think, recognize that it's very unlikely that Ukraine uh, will actually be invited to become a member of NATO because, uh, you know, again and again, the West has made clear that it, it won't fight to defend Ukraine. Uh, but they've become very alarmed by America arming Ukraine. And also uh, measures by the Ukrainian government uh, to reduce um, and in some areas even abolish the use of the Russian language in Ukraine. Because the Russians have always felt that, you know, in the long run, the relationship between the two peoples is so close that the, Europe, that the Ukrainians would come back to some kind of, you know, friendly relationship with Russia. Uh, but in recent years, they've become afraid that actually the intention of Kiev is to destroy the entire basis of that relationship, and that if this were continued over a generation or so, they might succeed. So essentially, the Russian government has decided to, to put its foot down. And by the threat of military pressure, uh, the uh, Russians now hope to be able to persuade America and the West to back off uh, from trying to turn Ukraine into an ally. So this is in a long-standing conflict, not just in the in the in the grand scheme of things as you uh, laid out, but also just in recent years. And I think in 2015, Kiev and Moscow reached an agreement that brought the boil, I think, to a simmer. Can you explain the terms of the Minsk II agreement and explain why it hasn't really been implemented yet? Well, um, after the Ukrainian revolution of, of 2014, Russia did two things. Uh, the first was that it um, occupied and annexed, or you could say re-annexed, because Crimea had been part of Russia uh, until um, it was transferred by Soviet order in 1956. Uh, so um, Russia annexed Crimea, including the old Russian naval base of Sevastopol. Uh, but um, Russian sort of 
lightly disguised special forces also supported uh, a local rebellion of Russian speakers in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. And this began a war, I mean, fairly low level, but about 14,000 people have been killed by now, uh, between um, local separatists, as I say, these sort of so-called Russian volunteers, and the Ukrainian army. And uh, for a while, this looked as if it was going to turn into full-scale war. Uh, but then uh, in Minsk, the Belarusian capital, an agreement was brokered and signed by uh, Germany, France, Russia, and Ukraine, which um, would end the conflict by giving the Donbass autonomy, guaranteed autonomy within Ukraine, uh, guaranteed by the international community. And this agreement was actually endorsed by the United States, by the Obama administration, uh, and by the United Nations, and indeed by the whole of the West. Uh, but aspects of it were very, were left vague. Uh, and uh, essentially, the, there have been two big sticking points. Um, the Russians are basically insisting on uh, complete demilitarization. In other words, the separatists will disarm and Russian forces will withdraw, uh, but um, the Ukrainian army should not be present. Um, you can have border guards, but no actual Ukrainian troops. This presumably would mean there would have to be an international peacekeeping force for Ukraine. So this is unacceptable to the Ukrainians. On the other hand, the Ukrainians uh, have actually um, refused to implement the the most basic element of the um, agreement, which is they have refused to pass a law establishing permanent autonomy for the Donbass in advance of demilitarization. They say, oh no, first you know, the separatists have to disarm and uh, the Russian volunteers have to leave. Uh, and uh, only then will we think about passing autonomy, which by the way, might only be temporary. Well, obviously, I mean, you, you can't, have a peace agreement on those terms anywhere in the world. So um, basically, uh, it, it would have been necessary for the West um, and America uh, to bring real pressure to bear. Um, uh, but of course, this would have had, had to involve heavy pressure on the Ukrainians as well, um, since you know, their failure to implement the agreement has been probably the biggest sticking point. Uh, because after all, an international peacekeeping force, you know, would still leave the territory within Ukraine. Uh, the stupid thing from my point of view is, is that the biggest um, reason for the Ukrainians refusing to allow autonomy for the Donbass is that they think, the Ukrainian government and parliament thinks, that this would be used to block um, NATO membership for Ukraine. But of course, as long as the Donbass conflict remains open, uh, under NATO rules, Ukraine can't be a member of NATO anyway, because it has a territorial you know, dispute on its territory. So the Ukrainians, but America as well, and Western Europe have, have got themselves into a ridiculous situation whereby they insist on holding open you know, the possibility of NATO membership for Ukraine. Uh, thereby maintaining a situation in which Ukraine can't get NATO membership, and also, by the way, repeatedly stating that they won't fight to defend Ukraine, um, which, of course, under Article 5, you're bound to do. Uh, so um, it's, it's really, I mean, a, a quite 
surreal um, episode in in international relations. Um, and it does, I mean, I suppose if you want to be kind, you'd say that it reflects the degree to which the West has become trapped by its own rhetoric. Um, if you wanted to be unkind, you'd say that, you know, the political dysfunction in Washington and the moral cowardice of um, Western leaders is such that they can't take the obvious way out of this ridiculous situation. I'm going to ask you about those mixed messages in a second, but um, you've recently written that Russia has communicated what you refer to as a golden bridge from Sun Tzu, I think, which is essentially a diplomatic resolution that the other side can agree to without losing too much face or uh, vital interest and so on. What is this golden bridge? And uh, how how would you see it working out, and and why hasn't it been pursued? Well, uh, it, Russia has hinted at this. The actual Russian demands are rather different. They are that you know NATO uh, that um, NATO membership for Ukraine should be ruled out. Uh, that um, NATO should commit itself not to station forces in NATO. The NATO members who joined after the end of the Cold War. Now, on the face of it, I mean, these demands are unacceptable. Uh, however, um, there have been suggestions behind the scenes that I've heard of that these are just initial, you know, bargaining counters of the Russians, um, and that uh, they would, in fact, accept a deal, a uh, neutrality-style deal, uh, which would, of course, have to include um, also Ukraine not joining a Russian alliance. So this has been called, you know, Finlandization or the Austrian State Treaty of 1955, whereby Soviet troops and Western occupying troops withdrew from Austria uh, as part of a treaty whereby Austria became formally non-aligned and neutral. Uh, this, by the way, did not stop Austria developing as a Western free market democracy. It just meant that it couldn't join NATO or the European Union. Uh, and um, I think the Russians would accept this. It, it would be difficult, I think, for them not to, because after all, they have made their big point or demand um, that you know NATO should not threaten Russia through Ukraine. Well, obviously, neutrality rules that out. Uh, but I think, it, you see, it would be much better if, as I believe, the Russians have left this possibility open. Um, it would be much, much better and make things much easier uh, for the West if, in fact, President Biden, uh, the US administration, uh, made this proposal. Because then, of course, it's our proposal. Um, and not to put too fine a point on it, we can claim, you know, that we succeeded, uh, rather than seeming to, you know, bow to, to, to Russian pressure. Um, that seems to me the best diplomatic way out of this. Uh, because um, in the end, you know, we've got to keep in mind that as the Russians have proved a couple of times now, in the very last resort, they will fight. Because for them, this is a vital interest. I mean, for them, this is like Canada and Britain and Australia put together, uh, joining 
an alliance with China um, and uh, also adopting Chinese as their international language. I think we um, we all know that that would uh, receive a rather negative response in Washington, right? Um, and democracy, as we've seen again and again in American actions in Central America, would not restrain the United States from taking some very ruthless actions in return. So, I mean, the point is that Russia regards this as a vital interest. And despite you know, all the endless, endless talk and rhetoric, um, the West does not. It does not regard Ukraine as a, as a vital interest and won't deliberately fight. But of course, we could stumble step by step into war, you know, never, never actually intending to go to war, but one thing, you know, follows from another. For example, you know, naval patrols in the Black Sea, and then they collide with a Russian warship, or an American spy plane over Ukraine, which is brought down by a Russian fighter. You know, one can draw endless scenarios of this kind. Right. So you've mentioned a couple times now um, the seemingly mixed signals from the United States and perhaps the West in general, which is on the one hand standing firm um, and uh, pushing potential future NATO membership. And on the other hand, stating plainly that we won't insert U.S. troops to fight Russians on Ukrainian soil. Um, so it's uh, the overall messaging seems to be confusing, uh, and, I, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, as I said to a member of the Biden administration a few weeks ago, who was saying, you know, that oh, uh, Russia is is to blame, uh, you know, Russian actions after 2014 are to blame for Ukrainian attitudes to them. I pointed out that, you know, if you went back to the early 1990s or mid 1990s and drew the future, um, we might never have engaged in NATO expansion in the first place. Um, the, I believe in academia, it's called path dependency. Um, the West decided on NATO expansion uh, at a moment when Russia was so weak that it seemed we could do anything and everything, and there was nothing that Russia or anybody else could, could do about it. Um, in addition, uh, while, of course, the Poles and Balts and others were all absolutely clear, openly said from the very start that this was directed against Russia. Um, the official rhetoric of NATO was, oh, no, no, this is not against Russia. This is uh, simply, um, you know, helping to expand democracy and the free market. And, you know, any country can join and strategy and, you know, capacity for military defense has nothing to do with it. Well, having talked like that for 15 years, um, it uh, became impossible uh, or at least much more difficult without a moral courage that Western leaders have lacked um, to say, look, NATO is a military alliance. It's a defensive alliance. We're all, you know, we are signed up by treaty to fight for each other if attacked. We can't defend Ukraine. Uh, we don't have the troops. And, you know, let's face it, Europeans won't fight. Uh, America doesn't have the troops in Ukraine and has, to put it mildly, military commitments elsewhere in the world. So terribly sorry, simply for strategic reasons, you know, absolutely obvious, clear strategic and geopolitical reasons, Ukraine is out. But of course, having said again and again that any European democracy can join NATO, 
uh, it became much more difficult to return, you know, to this basis of reality, if you will. And then, you know, there's the but but there's also the, you know, the the accursed um, language in Washington and often in Europe as well. It must be said, you know, whereby any compromise, particularly with Russia, but obviously with with Iran, with China as well, is automatically portrayed at least by the opposition, but by many people in in, in the ruling party as well, as cowardice, appeasement, you know, weakness, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which frankly makes it almost impossible to reach uh, any kind of reasonable compromise, because compromise, by definition, is about mutual concessions. Um, if you're not prepared to make any concessions, you won't get an agreement. Uh, at that point, you have to be as America appeared to be, but wasn't in the 1990s, all-powerful. Uh, but of course, it's absolutely obvious America is not all-powerful anymore. And quite apart from Russia, um, you know, uh, there is the, the, the issue of, uh, of China. We'll get to China in a second. You know, one of the other, I think there's a strong contingent in the U.S. policymaking community that wants to try to frame this problem as one of, as, in the context of global democracy. Right. And um, democracy in Ukraine is what obligates, is part of what obligates the United States to act strongly in its defense. Um, and that this whole, this whole kind of um, struggle here it hinges on the importance of Ukrainian democracy. And that kind of um, framing is very, Americans are very used to it. I think that they, uh, it sounds normal to go to war in defense of democracy but that that sort of uh shadows important aspects of this which which you have described as you know colossally expensive and uh, a potentially dangerous liability for the united states can you talk a little bit about that demo democratic uh, democracy type rhetoric around this mm -hmm. well i mean the thing is of course that the expansion of NATO, but much more the European Union to Eastern Europe did help consolidate democracy there. But of course, as we know, I mean, elsewhere in the world, um, American global power depends very, very heavily uh, on alliance with non-democracies, um, you know, especially in the Middle East, but historically in Central America as well, in much of Africa, East Asia, uh, which America um, has done very little indeed, you know, to to change or or, or reform. So uh, there is a huge amount of hypocrisy uh, involved here as well. Uh, and one of the elements of hypocrisy is it's not just that Ukraine is an extremely flawed democracy, deeply corrupt, highly authoritarian, but in its you know ethno ethnic and language policies, uh, Ukraine is pursuing the kind of mono-ethnic nationalism, which of course the West is supposed deeply to disapprove of, you know, and blames Viktor Orban for in Hungary and condemns in the Balkans and so forth. So um, I, I'm afraid that this argument about the defense of democracy is, is highly flawed. But also, as I say, um, if you look at the purely strategic and military aspect, um, 
neutrality for Finland and Austria did not during the Cold War did not prevent them uh, in every other way from being part of the West, from developing as very successful free market democracies. Um, the question is, of course, whether Ukraine is capable of that. And as we know from several of the new NATO members and EU members in Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, um, you know, these are, just because you take a country into NATO by no means indicates uh, that it's going to be a successful democracy. I mean, le leaving alone during the Cold War, you know, military coups in Greece, in Turkey, in Portugal. So, um, no, I mean, uh, uh, but this this is, you know, the argument, of course, um, which helped justify, you know, America's disastrous war in Vietnam, South Vietnam being, of course, a joke of a democracy, uh, was used to justify the invasion of Iraq with disastrous consequences, um, was used to, to justify intervention in Libya with only slightly less disastrous com consequences. You know, it led to a megalomaniac, uh, ridiculous program of democratic state building in Afghanistan, you know, which helped to keep America fighting there for 20 years, you know, a decade after it was clear that uh, Af Afghanistan was not going to develop in this way. So um, the problem, I mean, there are two problems, you know, the, the fir first is that it's hypocritical, but the second, the second is that it, it helps lead America or is used, if you look at the Bush administration before Iraq, to lead America uh, into unnecessary conflicts, which are not in America's interest. Um, and thirdly, the, the countries involved very often are not really democracies at all, uh, or at least stand no chance of developing as such. One of the arguments for staying tough against Russia on Ukraine is that a failure to do so will signal to China that we won't stand up to them on Taiwan. This is another very, very common argument uh, for American intervention in various places. Can you address this credibility argument? Mm. Well, I, I've described this as the credibility is the most dangerous word, you know, in the in the Washington foreign policy vocabulary. Because of course, what it means is that any conflict in the world, you know, however irrelevant to America's interests, however unimportant in itself, uh, or um, a case where America actually has absolutely no idea what to do or even which side to fight on, like Syria, uh, can, can be used, the credibility argument, uh, in other words, to impress somebody else somewhere else, can be used to justify uh, American involvement. I mean, remember Syria, the people urging involvement, uh, you know, intervention in Syria, of course, human rights argument as well. But that the credibility argument was used again and again. We're a superpower. We have to do something. Do what? Uh, overthrow the Syrian state so that ISIS can take over? Uh, or are we going to back forces allied with Al-Qaeda uh, instead of ISIS as a preferable alternative? What is our plan once we've got rid of Assad? What's, what's our plan to create a new Syrian state? They had no answers to any of these things. And this, by the way, you, you know, was already uh, eight years after the disaster of Iraq. So um, you know, the, the credibility argument is, is terribly dangerous. Um, it played a big part in Vietnam as well. Of course, there was the domino theory about, you know, if we lose Vietnam, then communism will take Thailand and India and so forth. But it was also 
credibility. Our allies will will abandon us. Well, of course, the <laughs> the thing is, um, the credibility argument was used in in Afghanistan as well. Of course, if if America had stitched up what would have been a much better deal in those days, ten years ago and got out, uh, its credibility would have suffered far far less than hanging on and on, and then of course eventually pulling out in thoroughly humiliating circumstances. Same thing with with Vietnam. You know, if America had not gone in in '65 and pulled out its advisors, um, there would have been a degree of humiliation, yes, but nothing like, of course, what actually happened. But finally, um, I mean, when it comes to China, this is an absolutely nonsensical argument, because, because of course, uh, talking about impressing China, um, what would most serve Chinese interests? It's for America to have to send a huge army and a very large part of its air force to Europe to confront Russia. Um, I mean, do, do they, are, are the people who say this incapable of actually, you know, the most basic strategic and military calculations? This is what Beijing is praying for. You know, and you only have to spend a couple of minutes putting yourself in the shoes of the leadership in Beijing to know that. Um, no, I mean, you want to deter China, you deter China. Uh, you don't do it by distract, you know, distracting your attention and your resources um, by confrontation with Russia. Um, I, you know, I made the parallel to the British Empire before the First World War. Once it identified Germany as the biggest threat, it concentrated on Germany. It didn't try to impress Germany by picking fights with the United States or the French. Yeah, to play off that last point, it seems uh, to the extent that China is watching the Ukraine situation and taking in any information about it, it seems to me that if the United States takes a particularly strong stance here and wants to intervene militarily, couldn't that signal to China that Washington is not really prepared to abide by international agreements and... Um, respect the vital interests of other great powers in their near abroad? And couldn't that exacerbate tensions with China? Well, it would certainly exacerbate tensions because, as you say, the Chinese would, um, it would confirm them uh, in their view that America is determined essentially to rule the entire world or dominate it, and that there would never be any chance, therefore, of some kind of compromise or agreement with America in the Far East. But there is also, as I say, I mean, the most basic military calculation. Um, for America, credibly to threaten to go to war with Russia for Ukraine would mean America moving hundreds of thousands of US troops to Europe. The greater part of the American army would have to go there. Uh, it would have to be escorted by the American Navy, and it would have to be backed up by the greater part of the American Air Force if one were to guarantee victory uh, against Russia. And <laughs> a land war with Russia on Russia's borders uh, would be a damned serious business. This is not something, you know, that some kind of, you know, invasion of Iraq or or air campaign in Libya. Um, well. Who doesn't think seriously that China would take advantage of that? You know, if most of the American armed forces were tied down in Europe, would would China not take advantage of that in the Far East? Of course they would. So it's it, it is the most strategically bizarre uh, and irresponsible argument conceivable, and coming from people who claim. 
you know, to be military and strategic experts, you know, former deputy secretaries of defense, for God's sake. Uh, I mean, this is very, very strange stuff for anyone who has seriously studied uh, history and military strategy. If we can linger on this credibility question for just a little longer, um, some of what you just said made me kind of think of the question of whether or not the United States has a credibility problem already with respect to NATO members. You know, put aside uh, extending membership to Ukraine, but I I'm kind of sometimes I'm skeptical that Americans would broadly support military action in the Baltics should NATO decide that it's necessary. Do we have a broader credibility problem with NATO? Well, I think that we do. But on the other hand, uh, Russia, despite all the nonsense you will read in the Western media, uh, has no intention of actually attacking the, the Baltic states, let alone Poland. It, it would gain nothing from it, uh, except, of course, bitterly discontented local populations, um, and would ensure the absolute hostility. You know, it, NATO might not fight, but of course, it would. I mean, it would consolidate uh, NATO hostility to Russia. It, it would mean that the West Europeans would finally, you know, actually have to learn to do without Russian gas and so forth and so on. So yes, I mean, I think there is a doubt about that. Uh, but certainly, I mean, the the crazy thing is, once again, the people who say, oh, you know, we need to um, defend Ukraine or Georgia uh, in, in order to um, show the credibility of NATO, uh, they've got it completely back to front. Um, the Article 5 is a guarantee to NATO members. That is where credibility has to be built up. By making half promises to countries that are not members of NATO, and for which in the end, you will not fight as America. Remember, the Bush administration didn't fight for Georgia in 2008, just as the Obama administration didn't fight for Ukraine in 2014. So this is not a Democrat, Republican thing, you know, it's a Pentagon thing. In the end, you know, way back in August 2008, um, when um, Vice President Cheney, suggested in cabinet uh, that the uh, US should send troops to Georgia. It was immediately shot down, vetoed uh, by the Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates, with the full support of, of the US uniformed military. So, um, you know, you, you it's completely the reverse. You weaken NATO credibility by these incredible promises that very few people have any intention of actually keeping. Um, I mean, fortunately, I mean, my hope, although it's gone down since, you know, in recent weeks, based upon the formula that, um, to judge by 2008-2014, um, NATO would never actually defend anywhere that Russia might actually attack, but Russia would never actually attack anywhere that NATO might actually defend. Um, I hope that remains the case. Uh, in terms of dealing with Russia on the global stage, another popular notion in policymaking circles is that Russia is a kind of spoiler for American interests in the Middle East. Can you explain this view and, and talk about why you think it's flawed? Well, something that I've noticed for, for many years in, in Washington, perhaps it's true of security establishments in general, but there is this 
obsessive character. Uh, I think it's partly due to all these, you know, so these hacks, these so-called experts who are not really experts at all, but, you know, as one saw in the war on terror, just jump from one subject to another, depending on where the money is, you know, uh, they don't really know, just as, you know, they knew nothing about Islam when they all became experts on terrorism. They knew nothing about Afghanistan when they became experts on Afghanistan. Um, you know, so, um, and there is this tendency, which is then, of course, uh, taken up by the media um, to develop these sort of vast, all-encompassing enemies. And if you can put a specific name to it, like Putin, you know, or Saddam Hussein, you know, or Osama bin Laden, so much the the better. Uh, and then you get this meta narrative, if you will, of universal evil and universal threat. And yes, Russia has been portrayed uh, in this light. Uh, and of course, I mean, there have been uh, Russian actions, certainly, which have been um, hostile to American interests. Uh, but, I mean, if you look at where by far the greatest American uh, military commitments, but also the greatest American disasters have been over the past uh, 20 years, well, they have been in the, in the greater Middle East, in the Muslim world. Well, and Russia opposed those, or in the case of Libya, went along, you know, with the initial step, but then was extremely angry at the way in which it was turned into a a program for regime change. Well, you tell me, if um, America had followed Russian advice uh, in 2003 and not invaded Iraq, uh, would the Middle East be uh, better or worse off today? Would America be better or worse off if uh, America had followed Russian wishes and not overthrown the Libyan regime? Uh, would we have the same? Uh, would we have a civil war in Libya today? Would we have migrants flooding across the Mediterranean? You know, producing uh, serious political destabilization in Europe. If America had begun talking to the Taliban, when Russia began to talk to the Taliban, talked seriously to the Taliban um, more than 10 years ago, uh, would, the event would the losses and the eventual humiliation for America uh, in the Middle East have been greater or lesser? Uh, if um, America had stuck with the Iran nuclear deal, as Russia wanted, uh, would we be in a better or worse position vis-a-vis -vis Iran and Iran's nuclear program today? Um, if America had, you know, had um, uh, gone into Syria, uh, you know, against obviously Russian opposition and Russian support for the um, Assad regime, I mean, this is of course a counterfactual. We don't know, but does any serious analyst think that if America had overthrown? the Syrian state, then, you know, on the basis of what we know from Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, that we would have got a, a stable Syrian state, which could have, you know, defeated terrorism. No. So, I mean, the point is, who, you know, who has been the disruptive power in the Middle East? I mean, there's no question. It's the United States. And who has actually been right in these cases, well, not just Russia, of course, but you know, in the case of Iraq, of course, it was Russia and a row of um, uh, U.S. allies, France, Germany, India, for example. Uh, so you see this whole notion of Russia as universally and implacably 
hostile and negative is quite wrong. And I mean, what that indicates, of course, is that, you know, uh, there are undoubtedly cases where America will have to confront Russia, uh, or at least, you know, there will have to be some pretty tough, very tough negotiations. For example, um, cyber crime, you know, absolutely. Uh, but there are other cases uh, where, in fact, um, interests are pretty well aligned. Uh, as, you know, in Syria, for example, uh, or in the Middle East more generally, in combating Islamist terrorism. It's very striking from that point of view, you know, um, that uh, Russia uh, has retained perfectly good relations with Israel. Uh, because although, of course, the Israelis are, are not happy with Russia's relations with Iran, um, they recognize that when it comes to fighting against, you know, Sunni Islamist terrorism and ISIS, Russia is absolutely on the same page. So if Israel can cooperate with Russia in the Middle East, why can't America, one asks oneself. Speaking of U.S. policy in the greater Middle East region, Biden withdrew from Afghanistan last year, as we discussed, and although, at least in my opinion, it was unquestionably the right decision, I would say he received rather enormous domestic criticism for the move, at least among some uh, groups. And, you know, the varying complaints to do with uh, the fight against terrorism, you know, erroneous credibility arguments that we've mentioned, uh, the manner in which Biden withdrew, etc. Talk about how you view the Afghanistan issue now that the U.S. military occupation and state-building campaign is in the rearview mirror. Well, many years ago, um, uh, during the discussions that preceded the Obama surge in 2009, um, I asked a former U.S. general, now in the political role, uh, if he could define victory in Afghanistan. And he said, no, I can't. Uh, but I can define defeat. And he said, oh, by the way, I don't think anyone in Washington can define victory. Either. This is 12 years ago now. Um, but he said, uh, we can define defeat. Defeat looks like Saigon 1975. I've always remembered. He said, do not underestimate the determination of the US military to fight on for a very long time to prevent pictures like that appearing again. Well, of course, the tragic irony is that, that is, that's a non-argument, because you, if you have no, no idea of what victory means, if you can't define success, if you're only fighting on to, to avoid failure, well, you're going to fail eventually. And as we saw, uh, in the end, Saigon-type pictures were exactly what you got. Uh, but that cannot be a, a reason to go on fighting for another 20 years, and 20 years after that, and 20 years after that. Um, because, of course, uh, it had long been apparent that the program of trying to establish a successful, strong Afghan state had failed. You know, it was already apparent 12 years ago. Um, and so I, I agree with you. I mean, Biden was, was right to get out. And I think you know, deeply unfortunate though those pictures were, and it could have been somewhat better managed. But let's face it, you know, as, as soon as it became clear 
that America was leaving and the Taliban was winning, there was going to be a mass exodus, which was going to be very difficult to manage you know, in a humane and orderly way. So ultimately, I think you know, any US administration had to simply bite the bullet. And I think a Republican administration in power, if, you know, if Trump had actually gone ahead you know, with his promise to w withdraw from Afghanistan, it would have been no different. But certainly, I mean, it, it, was, it was a tragic way for it to end. And tragic, obviously, that so many Americans, allies, hundreds of British troops, and of course, hundreds of thousands of Afghans, you know, died in what for many years had quite obviously been a, a hopeless cause. But, you know, just as you know, withdrawal from Af uh, from Vietnam in 1973 obviously led to a major U.S. humiliation. Uh, but you know, was that an argument for going on fighting in Vietnam for another, what, 10, 20, 30, 50 years? No. I mean, at a certain point, uh, it's also, I think, a mark of moral courage um, to recognize, you know, that a policy has failed and one simply has to get out. Uh, or in the old military phrase, I can't remember who said it first, never reinforce defeat. If it's clear you're losing, then don't throw you know, good money after bad. Uh, well, and still less, of course, good lives after good lives. Although we've withdrawn from Afghanistan, I continue to see reports and indications in policy that certain aspects of the way we've approached Afghanistan are not going away. Um, there are, the Biden administration is still looking at various terror groups and ISIS uh, cells and so on in Afghanistan and uh, planning potentially to conduct airstrikes. And uh, this kind of makes me uh, want to ask you about Afghanistan and Pakistan as a, as a unit in, 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 in U.S. foreign policy. And um, the relationship there. You wrote a fantastic book uh, years ago, uh, very in depth, called "Pakistan: A Hard Country," um, and so you know you know the country well. Um, how do you think about the U.S. relationship with Pakistan, given the long history that we have with them, and now that we're out of Afghanistan? What do you see coming forward um, in the way that we manage that relationship? Well, I think the biggest disruptive factor is now shifting actually from Afghanistan to China, because China, you know, is not exactly an ally. You know, it's not committed to fight for Pakistan, but certainly is a closer and closer strategic partner of of Pakistan. Um, but I think, I mean, Afghanistan is is also an example of the fact that America both should and could work with regional powers uh, to bring influence to bear uh, on the Taliban. That means Pakistan, but it also means China and Russia, and indeed Iran, if one could um, get over, obviously, the deep, deep problems between uh, America and Iran. Because the fascinating thing is that on Afghanistan, we're all on the same side. All of these, uh, these countries are deeply opposed to international Islamist terrorism, uh, for their own very good reasons. The Iranians, of course, hate ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, 
um, and have had, you know, have deep, deep problems with the Taliban in the past. All of them, however, have also been trying to cultivate reasonable relations with the Taliban. And several of them, uh, by the way, are also deeply um, interested in uh, trying to end uh, the heroin trade from Afghanistan. So, uh, Pakistan is deeply opposed to uh, Islamist terrorism from Afghanistan because, of course, it had to fight a, a civil war, a very bloody one, um, in which more than 60,000 people died uh, against its own Islamist insurgency. So I think there, you know, there ought to be, you know, if only America could see itself as part of an international, you know, configuration or partnership instead of you know, constantly feeling it must decide, it must dictate. There are actually very good opportunities um, for, you know, influencing uh, the Taliban towards responsible behavior. Uh, but of course, that that does also involve uh, aid to Afghanistan. Um, you know, it, it involves uh, humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. Um, uh, but obviously, uh, in return for renewed commitments by the Taliban to fight against international terrorism in Afghanistan. But by the way, I mean, the, the Taliban are already fighting ISIS. You know, ISIS are rivals for power in, in Afghanistan. And the only, you know, just as in the end, it was only the Pakistani state and army with Pakistani legitimacy who could crush the Islamist rebellion in Pakistan. So in the end, it is only the Taliban government uh, who can crush ISIS in Afghanistan. And the idea which you hear in some quarters in America, um, and also unfortunately in uh, in India, that we should back uh, an armed opposition to the Taliban, you know, from uh, our former you know, allies, the Tajiks, Uzbeks, and so forth, that would be absolutely disastrous. Um, because uh, if it succeeded, uh, it, it would... Um, destroy the Afghan state, uh, it would in any case distract the Taliban massively from the fight against ISIS. And while these anti-Taliban forces might, with you know massive US and Indian backing, take over parts of the north, this would be a recipe for ISIS uh, taking over the east and the south. So once again, I mean, just like Syria, we would have allowed a kind of historical obsession. I mean, understandable perhaps, but still irrational. Uh, to distract ourselves from the biggest actual danger today. And I mean, remember, uh, the Taliban themselves have never been, the Afghan Taliban, an international terrorist force. They gave shelter to Al-Qaeda, yes, but they have never tried to carry out international terrorist attacks. ISIS have. ISIS is quite explicitly dedicated to universal jihad. Well, you know... <laughs> Who's the enemy here? <laughs> For me, the enemy is the enemy that threatens, you know, U.S. and European citizens at home. You know, and ISIS-linked individuals and groups have murdered hundreds of people in Europe. They are the enemy. I mean, what what is so difficult to understand about that? Anatole Levin, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Mm -hmm.